The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we have major updates on two of the biggest legal stories of the year, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and the second trial in the murder of George Floyd. Court TV's Michael Ayala joins me to discuss the major revelations and how it will impact both trials going forward. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading. And in this episode, we're taking a look at two big, big cases that we have covered and will continue to cover here on your front row seat to justice. And we've got big news in, in both of them, actually, involving trial dates. And I'll begin with the case in Georgia, South Georgia, Ahmad Arbery shot and killed while running through a neighborhood in Brunswick. And three men have been charged with his murder. Uh, Gregory and Travis McMichael, father and son, uh, they were in one pickup truck following uh, Ahmad Arbery through the neighborhood. They had guns. And then there's William Roddy Bryant. He was a neighbor in a second pickup truck. He had a camera or a cell phone that had a camera on it, and he recorded uh, much of what happened that day, including the shooting and killing of Ahmad Arbery. So we've got a trial date, October 18th of this year. Kind of caught me by surprise because, you know, not much has happened in the case. It's been slow moving, but then all of a sudden we got a trial date. Then we had a huge day in the courtroom with, where lots of motions were talked about. Not a ton of decisions or final decisions were made, so a lot of these issues are still up in the air. And I'd like to speak about them with my colleague and friend, Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor. Uh, Michael, were, were you were you surprised? I, I just was. I was kind of taken back by the fact that an October 18th of this year trial date was set uh, in this case. Yeah, it came out of nowhere, Vinny, like you said. I mean, it was sort of, we hadn't heard anything about the case since uh, way back when we uh, aired the, uh, the bond hearing. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on. There were some motions being filed back and forth. William Roddy Bryan continues to try to get out of jail um, um, through his attorney, but we hadn't heard much. And then suddenly, you know, we, we had a court date. And so, you know, it was interesting. But yeah, and it's coming up fast. It's going to come up real fast, and, and it will happen this fall, October 18th again. Uh, court TV, of course, will be covering it for you. Now, let's let's talk about what happened in court uh, with these motions that were filed and what some of, some of the issues that are kind of up in the air uh, that need to be decided about how this trial is going to look in terms of what evidence is coming in, what's coming out. And let's begin with the defense. And of course, it happens in every case, especially cases like this, where the defense attempts to um, bring up issues related to the victim. And here we're talking about Ahmaud Arbery, the victim's past, past run-ins with the law. And also another issue that kind of uh, caught me by surprise, they wanted to get into the mental health history of Ahmaud Arbery as well. Um, let's begin there, because I don't think I've ever really seen this before, where a criminal defendant is getting into the mental health history or attempting to get into the mental health history of the victim in the case. Yeah, this is one of those cases where um, I thought the defense made a fairly interesting argument, and uh, the judge had his 
a clerk do some research. We did a little research here, came up with a few cases. And, you know, it makes for very, very interesting fodder because the mental health of the victim in a case like this, um, especially in a case where you're arguing self-defense, um, the defense is arguing it's important, Vinny, because they need to understand the state of mind of the defendant in this case vis-a-vis the victim, if the victim, for instance, had maybe some sort of psychotic drugs in them, if they were um, uh, being treated for some sort of mental condition, that's not the case here. But clearly, there have been some diagnoses of a me- uh, uh, an illness, a mental illness in Ahmad Albury. And they're saying that that is relevant whether the defendant knew about it or not, because it affects how um, uh, Ahmad Aubrey would have reacted to them and how the defendant would have reacted to Ahmad Aubrey. So it, it's an interesting argument. And uh, there is some case law. The judge himself cited a case from Vermont, Vermont v. Bolaski. And when I looked at that case, that case involves someone who, uh, the facts are a little different. Someone attacked someone. He had been heckled at a baseball game of some sort. Um, he attacks someone, that person defends themselves by shooting him a couple of times. And his argument was, um, this person had a mental illness, they were actually taking drugs for their mental illness, and he was allowed to bring that information in because of the actions of that person. And he could see that this person in his eyes, in in his position, as someone who was acting with self-defense, he could see that something was wrong with this person. And the judge thought it was relevant that the state of mind of the victim was just as important as the state of mind as the defendant and allowed that information in. And the judge was referring to that case as one that could be instructed. It's not controlling because it's a different state, but I think it's something that I think the defense has to feel good about. Yes, and very, I mean, the defense attorneys in this case are top-notch. I mean, they are the real deal. They're, they're not someone who just, you know, kind of got the case. Okay, yeah, I got to do that. No, no, no. These are real defense attorneys who are really smart and, and will, I think, give a full defense of these defendants. And, and what I mean is look at every possible way to defend what happened that day. Now, so we get back to this whole notion of the self-defense. And for a lot of people, it's like, what do you mean self-defense? Weren't these guys in pickup trucks following and and trying to stop Ahmad Arbery. How how is that self-defense? They are initiating the entire confrontation here. And I think what the defense is going to try to do is somehow get around that and focus on the moments just prior to the shooting where you've got the McMichaels and and and, and Ahmad Arbery is in between two pickup trucks, right? One pickup truck is behind him with Roddy Bryan and his camera recording. Ahmad Arbery is running down the street and the other uh, pickup is ahead of Ahmad Arbery and is parked in the middle of the street. And McMichael, Travis McMichael gets out of the pickup and he's got his, uh, his rifle with him and he's in the front of, of the pickup truck and Ahmad Arbery sort of runs around the pickup truck. And then Of course, as always is with these cases with video, just at that moment, you don't see clearly the initial confrontation. And when I say confrontation, I mean physical confrontation between Travis McMichael and Ahmaud Arbery. You see Travis McMichael's feet 
and but the camera is shaky and the pickup truck and the door of the pickup truck kind of get in the way of everything. So I think what the defense is going to do is focus on that moment and try to use, I guess, the mental health to say as Ahmad Arbery is rounding that pickup truck um, because of his whatever this mental health issue he has is he goes and attacks Travis McMichael, who is holding a rifle. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a moment. Well, first and foremost, let's remember that quite a few people looked at that video and thought that it was something that would exonerate these men. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, an attorney turned it over to prosecutors thinking that this would clear things up and everybody would go on home. And, everybody- and released it to the public, thinking the public will look at it and say, wow, of course, oh, nothing to see here. Exactly. So let's remember that. And you're exactly right. There is a moment where... Ahmaud Arbery comes around the truck and seems to make a very sharp left towards the direction of Travis McMichael. And I think that's, they're going to claim there. And and in their stories, right, we have the body cam footage of them talking to officers at the scene. The stories they tell depict that motion, that moment, as the moment where Travis felt like he had to defend himself at that point. So that's clear. And I think as far as taking it back to their right to stop him, I think they're still sticking with this idea that the citizen's arrest allowed them the right to go after him and try to stop him and detain him. That's their claim now, is they were just trying to detain him for police. And I think that is going to be their argument as to why they had a right to stop him. And this takes us back to why they want to get in the information about his interactions with police. Because what they're trying to say is his mental health problems causes him to react to any sort of authority in a very violent and very um, uh, aggressive way. And that was played out in that scene. So they're going to connect his previous interactions with police, the mental health issues, and that moment of confrontation, put it all together and say, this was a normal response for him. He had some mental health issues. We had no choice but to defend ourselves. If I had to do it, I think that's what the defense is trying to be. I think that's, I think you're right on. Let's take a listen to a uh, sheriff, uh, uh, Jerry Jones, who testified uh, during this motions hearing. And here he is being questioned by the defense. At this point, what were you perceiving based on the way that he was talking and acting? He's not being rational or logical. Um, Why do you feel that way? Why do you develop that opinion? He was just belligerent towards us for no no legitimate reason. We didn't. We didn't begin being hostile towards him. So, but he began hostile towards us. When that happened, does it cause you to think what could be causing that in Mr. Arbery? What could be causing him to be that way? Are you trying to figure that out at all? Well, we're we're trying to determine that. To try to calm it down, or at least calm down the situation. Um, what had occurred prior to our arrival? That could cause that, that I don't know. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Michael, trying to get that type of information. But that type of information, when it comes in, you know, ends up having two impacts, right? One is talking about the issue that the defense is arguing, but the other part of it is to uh, paint a picture of who, uh, of Ahmad Arbery having interactions with uh, law enforcement in the past. And, And we know the obvious effect that would have potentially on jurors saying, oh, okay, this is a guy who's always getting into trouble with the law. Yeah, that's that's the, the, the calculation that the judge has to make. First, he has to look at the evidence and say, is this relevant? Does it prove a point 
a fact in evidence. And he may decide that, yes, it may prove a fact in evidence, but there's, and that's a, a 404 uh, evidence rule that he has to make an assessment on. But there's a secondary gatekeeper rule, as you know, Vinny, 403. 403 is its prejudicial effect. Does it outweigh its probative value? And that's exactly what you're talking about. This negative effect that this type of evidence would have on the character of Amon Arbery, is that too prejudicial to allow in because based on what it's proving? And I think in, at the end of the day, even if the judge finds it relevant to the state of mind of the defendants, he will end up finding under 403 that it's just too prejudicial and not probative enough to allow into this trial. So I don't expect the interactions with police to get in. But there's still a serious question about some of this mental health history. Absolutely. So there's a, there's another issue that came up that was pretty big. And, and what we learned is that these three defendants have made about 1,500 phone calls while incarcerated. And there's a little concern, I think, from the defense about some of these phone calls ending up in front of the jury. Let's take a listen to some of those phone calls that the defense wants out. Yes, we plan to use jail calls by your client to non-lawyers at trial to incriminate him. Which ones? We don't know yet. I don't know how you can know you would be doing it if you haven't heard them. Maybe they have heard them, but they haven't given them to me yet in discovery and said, we're going to use these at your trial. We got some phone calls that were used in the bond hearing. I don't know if those are the calls they plan to use at trial or if there are others. Um, I don't know if the states even had any chance to go through these phone calls to make that decision yet. So in some way, the, the motion should stay alive. It doesn't need to be, I mean, it could be ruled on today by saying no matter what phone calls you find, you can't use them at trial against these defendants because of these arguments I've made here today. And that would save them time. They don't need to listen to those phone calls. They don't have any relevance to the case. So 1,500 phone calls is a lot. But, you know, Greg McMichael, I mean, this guy worked for the DA's office, right? I mean, he was an investigator for the DA's office. He understands, and, and every inmate knows these things are being recorded and what you say can and, and could be used against you. I am shocked that the defense is concerned about this um, because they must be concerned because there must be the potential that they are saying some things that a jury would use to determine what's going on inside the minds of these defendants, including Greg McMichael. So I, I don't understand how, they, how the defense even got here, Michael. I mean, how unsophisticated can you be? Well, I mean, I, I think... You, you mentioned it earlier. These, these are excellent attorneys on both sides. Vinny. And they're coming up with arguments. And, and, and this particular argument for this to keep out some of these phone calls was, and these are the judge's words, a novel issue. <laughs> to, to, and I think that's putting it mildly. Essentially what they're saying, Vinny, is that the legitimate purpose of um, the, the jail and the prisons to record these phone calls really revolve around either stopping any kind of criminal activity or keeping the proper security at the jail. And, and using any of those conversations um, is a violation of the constitutional rights of the prisoners. So it's really a constitutional issue that 
could in many ways find its way up the ladder, eventually maybe ending up with the Supreme Court of the United States. The idea that um, there's both uh, cruel and unusual punishment implications, there's equal protection implications. They made an argument that said, um, essentially, um, there are people who have committed the same crimes who are out on on bond and people who are in jail, they're being treated differently. So there's an equal protection issue. But the prosecution made a very cogent argument saying, these phone calls are not rights. They are privileges. They are given the privilege of making a phone call. So these constitutional rights uh, do not attach to these phone calls. And I think that was an argument that will win the day in this instance. But again, it's a novel argument by smart attorneys who are doing everything they can to zealously represent their clients on behalf of the defense. Yeah, I have a great response, though, for that prosecutor argument. It's not the right to make a phone call. It's the right to have a conversation, mm -hmm. which is a right to, to communicate and to uh, speak with people. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. Uh, but anyway, I said at the, at the top of the program, we've got big developments in two cases. So when we come back, uh, the death of George Floyd, um, the trials associated with that are continuing. We've got a, a sentencing that is coming up for Derek Chauvin, but we've also got the trial of the other three defendants. Big news in that. Plus, the feds are now in on all of this as well. So we got a bunch to talk about there. Uh, when we return, we will do that. Renowned journalist Ashley Benfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Benfield. All new episodes, Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. So we've got big news in the trial for the other three officers charged with the death of George Floyd. We know Derek Chauvin was found guilty. It was a case, of course, covered by Court TV with our cameras inside the courtroom. But the other three, it was supposed to happen this summer. And now a new trial date set by the judge for March of 2022. And again, this came out of left field as well. I mean, everything was going pretty smoothly. The, the first trial went very well without a hitch. They got it done. Um, there were no problems at the courthouse. They worked through COVID and everything else and, and, and finished that trial. But then it was time for the trial of the other three. And all of a sudden now we're in a more normal territory of, okay, well, we don't have to do it right away. We can, we can wait on this one. Uh, it's interesting, Michael, because I think the judge looked at what was happening with the federal charges, which were brought, and he actually noted this, that the potential penalties for the federal charges could be more serious. And I think in the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, if that federal trial goes first and they're found guilty, maybe they won't even do this second one, the state trial. Do you think that's that's possibly what's going on in, in Judge Cahill's mind? Oh, I, I absolutely do. I, I, I have no doubt at all. And he's right. Um, the federal case does have higher penalties. But normally, Vinny, as you know, it's the other way around. The feds will defer to the state because the state will have precedent in these kind of cases. They consider a crime uh, being con com committed in a particular county or state. Uh, they will take precedence to the federal charges. But I think the judge was looking at a couple of things. Number one, I think he said that he wanted to put a little more distance between this particular trial and the Chauvin trial. I think the city itself is fatigued behind the whole Chauvin experience. Um, and I think he felt that. I think, I think he as a judge was probably fatigued 
um, from dealing with all that was going on as you know, what was interesting is that this was a motion brought sua sponte. What that means is that he brought it on his own accord. It wasn't asked for by either party. Now, either party, um, I think the prosecution did object, saying that they were, in fact, ready for trial, but it wasn't a strenuous objection and ultimately agreed to the extension. The defense didn't have any problem with it at all. I think everyone involved um, is happy to move it uh, further away. I think it'll make it easier to get a jury at that point, but that's questionable because um, if this federal trial goes and gets a lot of publicity. I mean, you have that issue as well. So, you know, there are some issues, but I, I'm not I'm not opposed to him extending it out a little bit. I think uh, for the most part, uh, reading the room, reading the city, reading everything that's been going on is probably necessary. It, it's fascinating the way the schedule has gone, because for the first trial, prosecutors are like, stop, stop. We're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. And the judge is like, no, we're going, we're going. And now the judge puts the next one off till next March. And the state's like, well, wait a minute. We're ready for trial, Your Honor. What, what? No. So here's my take, though, on the federal case, Michael. And and and, we're, and, and again, there's federal charges against Chauvin as well. I don't want to talk about Chauvin yet. I want to talk about the other three. Because from the beginning, I think I, I personally believe the case against the other three is much different and is much more difficult for prosecutors. I think those three officers are in a different position. Two town never touches George Floyd. The other two are rookies. One of the rookies is actually uh, uh, chiming in, saying, "Should we turn him on his side? Should we turn him on his side?" Um, and the other, the other rookie, um, Chauvin, is his training officer. And I think they're in a tough position. And I think there'll be more sympathy for them at trial. And one of them's black, by the way. Officer King is black. Officer King's family said that he became an officer because he wanted to be part of the system to change things. And he ended up in this case. So I just look at these three defendants, much different circumstances than Derek Chauvin. Federal prosecutors, Michael, you know they don't like to lose. And they will do anything to avoid going to trial if they believe they have a chance of losing the case. And the case against these other three, I think they could potentially lose. So how do you think feds, the feds are going to handle this? Is it, is it a sweetheart deal for the other three and then flip them to testify against Chauvin in the federal case? Or what, what do they do with this? You know they hate to lose. And most federal cases, they usually have three videotapes, five audio tapes, a confession, and, and they've usually set up a sting operation here something happened, they believe it's a crime, now they've got to prosecute it like state prosecutors. Yeah, I think you may be right. I mean, I think there may be some maneuvering here to ultimately get the big fish with Chauvin. Uh, but I don't think you need the other three, the other three to flip on Chauvin to get Chauvin. So I'm not sure that's the end game. I think part of it may be po politics in that, you know, the, the Biden White House is very sort of directed Merrick Garland has already come out on the record, as has Biden and the vice president, talking about uh, racial justice, social justice, uh, being a, a department uh, uh, that is going to uh, really enforce these rules, bring change to police departments. And I think these charges are part of that movement forward to show how serious they are. Maybe they bit off more than they can chew here, but as you know, they do have that video. That video is powerful, but I agree. The case against these three officers is very different than the one against Chauvin. And I think there are better defenses for these other officers than there were for Chauvin. So I don't think the case is going to be as clear cut as Chauvin. But I still think, as you say, as we both know, I think they win something like over 90 percent of their cases. They do not play 
And they go in. They go in. No, no, they but go they in win. Hard. Huh? They win 90% because they choose which they ones go to choose. trial. Right. right. And, you, and, and I'll bring this example because I think a lot of people follow the case. Um, the college admission scandal, Lori Loughlin, right? Mm-hmm. They, Lori Loughlin and her defense team kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And the closer it got to trial, the sweeter the deal she got. There was a defendant, same exact circumstances as Lori Loughlin, pled guilty almost immediately, served like five times as much time as Lori Loughlin because of the deal that they got. The closer they got to trial, the, the, the feds blinked. And I think the same could be true here. And if, and if this is true that, that Judge Cahill wants to do the state case after the federal case, then the feds are going to be pushed here. And they're going to have to make a decision. So you think that they'll go forward and they'll just put them all on trial and see what happens regardless of, of what the um, what the outcome could be? I do. I do. I think it would be uh, antithetical to their stance on social justice and all that they've come out and said. I think they've painted themselves into a corner in many ways. And I think they have to go to trial here um, unless the plea deal is one that is extremely um, pro-prosecution. Um, which I don't think will happen here because I think the defense feels, again, like you mentioned, they have much better case here, one that I think they're very ready and want to try. I don't think there'll be a plea deal. I think they're going to be forced to go to trial on this one and uh, see how see where the chips fall. It'll be fascinating, uh, absolutely fascinating to see how that plays out and and where these defendants end up after that trial. Do you think the results of that trial impact I'm talking about the other three again. I'm not talking about Chauvin, but do you think the results of the federal trial would impact state prosecutors in, in how they proceeded? Um, if, if there's a conviction in federal court, would they then back off and just say, OK, we're, we're done? Would there be a an opportunity that if they were found not guilty in federal court, that the state prosecutors might offer a very sweet deal? What do you think? No, I think this is um, I think both federal government and the AG's office are both uh, being driven by political reasons as well. Uh, I don't think that Keith Ellison is going to want to walk away from this case um, in any way, shape or form. I think he respects and he has, has said as much. He respects what the federal government is doing. It shows how serious they are. It shows how serious these uh, the incident was. But I think the state has a case that he plans to try no matter what happens on the federal level. I think he has a, um, uh, a mission as far as all of these officers are concerned, um, uh, right down to police reform, I think up and down the line, and part of it is prosecuting this case. So I think no matter what happens on the federal level, the AG Keith Ellison is going to push forward with this case against the officers as well. All right, we'll we'll see how it all plays out, folks. And again, this is uh, you know it, it's got a little more complicated with the federal charges and the delays and figuring out what's going to go first, what goes second, um, but. I'm with Michael. I I think that these are the types of cases that end up getting tried, you know, because because of what they represent. So uh, we'll see what happens at at trial and whether or not jurors will see these other three officers any differently. I've asked that question many times on my program and um, many people see them differently. But there is a a, I would say a good 35 percent that are like there is no difference. They are all are equally responsible for what happened there. So we'll see how our, our system deals with that. I want to take a moment, though, to talk about Derek Chauvin. He's going to be sentenced. Um, prosecutors um, 
asked the judge to find certain aggravating factors because they want to sentence him above the Minnesota guidelines, which would put him at about 12 and a half years. He's facing a maximum of 40. They're going to be asking for more. We don't know how much more. Uh, but the judge did find some aggravating factors. And there's one that just has me a little bit, little bit uneasy and a little bit confused because I think it's inconsistent with what we watched during the course of that trial and the allegations in the case. Right. Derek Chauvin was was convicted of unintentional murder. Correct, Michael? Yes. Unintentional murder. Yet they found the aggravating factor of particular cruelty, particular cruelty in what he did. And I don't get it. It's a murder case where he did not intend to kill someone, yet he acted with particular cruelty. And all murder cases are cruel. All of them are. All right. To, to different degrees. But to find it as an aggravating factor means this is like of all the murder cases, this one, there's particular cruelty here. But he didn't even intend and, and prosecutors um, did not allege that he intentionally killed George Floyd. So how could this be a particularly cruel murder if he didn't intend to kill the victim? To me, that doesn't make sense in the world of murders. Because there's all different types of murders. You can stab someone. You can uh, strangle someone. You can shoot someone. Um, but here, you're unintentionally killing them, yet this is one that has been found to be particularly cruel. How? Well, I think the, I think the wording is a little, is tripping you up a little bit. I mean, it's unintentional murder because it was felony murder. The underlying felony was the assault. And I think the assault is what the court is deeming to be cruel because of the circumstances under which it took place. Now, we know that um, the intent had to be found for the assault, um, even though the definition of intent was interesting. Um, but we know that intent was required for the assault. And I think the underlying assault is where they're finding the cruelty, the fact that whatever assault took place and that the jury found took place, took place while this man was handcuffed with his hands behind his back, prone on the ground. And I think that's where the judge found, and, and, and you can liken it to a situation where someone is going to rob an older man. The older man has a heart problem. They knock him to the ground. They're not intending to kill him, but he has a heart attack and dies. They're charged with felony murder because the underlying felony was the assault and perhaps even a robbery. And during that robbery, during that assault, they kick him, they punch him, and they're particularly cruel to this 80-year-old man. I can see the same type of situation where they're saying the assault itself that resulted in the death, that caused the second degree murder charge was what was cruel, the actions during the assault. And I think that's where they're getting that particular uh, aggravating factor from. I, I follow you 100%, but you're talking about an assault. We're in the world of murder, right? And we're talking a particularly cruel murder, right? So I, I'm trying to figure out, okay, so it's a particularly cruel assault, but... This is a murder case, and, and aren't we comparing it to other murders? So what, what murder would not be particularly cruel? If an assault is particularly cruel that results unintentionally in a death, right? If that ends up being particularly cruel, then it's, to me it's almost meaningless. Like every murder is particularly cruel then. How, you know, it's assault versus murder. I mean, that's crazy For, from my perspective. I don't understand this. When I think of a particularly cruel murder, I'm thinking of torture, I'm thinking of you're intending to kill someone. You're killing them really slowly, like like a like a villain uh, would. I don't I don't understand this. You know, you know what's interesting is both things that you just said exactly what 
showed on that tape. They killed him slowly. Yes, and yes. You could argue but prosecutors they never believed that he acted intentionally. They would have charged him with intentional murder. No, they, they, the assault. But it's assault, assault not itself, murder. Why, if you believe that he was... There's an argument to be made, Vinny, that had there not been such cruelty in the assault, it never would have ended up in a death. But should a, so you can't should a cruel assault be an aggravated... Be, be, be deemed as an aggravated factor in a murder? Like, so if I, if I come up behind you and shoot you in the head, that's, that's going to be deemed, and I intentionally do it, you're not going to find that to be particularly cruel. I mean, look, I, I'm not going to substitute my judgment for the court, but I think, you know, if you do that in, you know, certain types of situations that say my family's in the house when you do it, yes, then it's an aggravating factor. But the act itself, I don't know how the judge, I don't know. Again, right, give me a again. murder that's not particularly cruel. Excuse me? Give me a murder that is not particularly cruel. To me, this this aggravating factor has no value. If you know what I mean? No, I, I, I do. I do. And and you know what? It's an argument that could be made that the aggravating factor in and of itself is something that perhaps does not pass constitutional muster. Um, I, I hear you. Um, I can only try to explain from reading the various paperwork involved in the case as to why these decisions are made. He reads but as it all, too, the, folks. He the, reads the it all. The actual aggravating factor itself, that's statutory issue, right? That was decided by the legislature. So you got to go back and figure out why they felt that that was necessary in your case. Yeah. And, 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 and another reason I look at it that way is I, for every victim, you know, and the victim's family, it, it, it's cruel. You know, we see it day in and day out. Whatever the circumstances are, they are cruel. And and I guess it's tough because you've got to look at murders and say, okay, of all these murders, which one of these are worse than others? Well, and, look, and for the victims, they're all bad. Noor. Let's look at Mohammed Noor, who was convicted of third-degree murder. Okay. And and the type of shooting that that was, um, maybe that's one that doesn't qualify as one that's particularly cool. He he was in his car, as we know the facts of that case, that and a woman came around and she was coming up to the car to talk to them. They thought they saw, some, saw something that... Uh, raise their their ire, their fear, and they shoot her in the alley. I can see that shooting as being not particularly uh, cruel. I mean, that would be a killing I would call not cruel. Okay. How about the uh, oh, okay a, a killing a, a murder? That's not that. That's okay. So that was one where again it was unintentional, right? It was it was unintentional. It was third degree murder. Still still a murder charge. Right. Sort of, you know, uh, and, but it was, it was, it was, you know, again, we know the definition of third degree does not require intent. Right. So yes, it was, it wasn't an intentional murder. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just have a hard time. That's with an interesting it. question. I have, a, I have a hard time with it because the, the cruelty is associated not with, to me, the cruelty gets into the mind of the defendant, right? The mind yes. of the defendant. And this whole case was he, it, it, you get inside his mind it had nothing to do with intent, and prosecutors ran away from it from the beginning and told this jury and made arguments that they don't have to prove intent of anything. But I don't know. We'll see how it all plays out. Uh, I think he's going to get. He's going to. What do you think his sentence is going to end up being? I'll put you on the line here. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think I think with four aggravating factors, I don't think they go over forty, but I think they get close to it. I think he gets. Probably in the 25 to 30 range. Yeah, I think 25 is the magic number, somewhere around there. Because, yeah. you know, 25 mm-hmm. is is what you get for intentional murder. So I think exactly. that's where he's going to end up, right around 25 or so. But we shall see. Michael Ayala, always great to have you on the program. Appreciate it. 
Always a pleasure to be here, Vinny. Thanks. All right, folks. When we come back, I'm going to take a look at the big, big picture next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. Today on the podcast, we talked about two very high-profile cases, Ahmaud Arbery and the death of George Floyd. And these two cases, a lot of headlines, uh, a lot of passion, uh, a, lot of, a lot of hurt for a lot of people. And, and two cases, when you, you take a step back and you look at it, um, as much as they get lumped together, right, to me, they are very different. And let me tell you why. And, and you know, a lot of people who are concerned and have, have marched and protested will, will wrap a lot of these um, cases together and a lot of these names together. You know, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, but I think what we need to do when we look at the big, big picture is look at each and every one of these cases individually on its own on their own set of facts and circumstances. And there's one huge fact and circumstance that really separates Ahmaud Arbery from from George Floyd and what happened to these two men. George Floyd was killed and murdered by a police officer. Ahmaud Arbery was shot and killed by someone who was not a police officer, was a citizen. And to me, there's a big difference between the two. Big, big difference. The result may not be different when it comes to trial, but when you're, you're talking about what happened in these two cases, to me it's extremely, extremely important to understand the difference. Because when someone's acting under the color of law as, a, as an actual police officer and doing what they're supposed to do day in and day out to serve and protect us, when they violate that, that is... That is beyond, but they're, they're often put in circumstances of conflict every day that they work. So uh, I look at those circumstances much differently than I would look at what happened to Ahmaud Arbery because there was no reason for those men in their pickup trucks to be following him. You're not police officers. You're not law enforcement. You didn't witness a crime. You're not arresting someone. And I know they're going to argue all about the citizen's arrest law, which has uh, been repealed by the governor of Georgia, but will still uh, the law will still apply in the case. Uh, if the jury finds it or if the judge allows it. But you, that's not your job. That's not your job. All right? Derek Chauvin's job was to serve and protect, and when the call comes, you've got to respond, and the other officers involved in that case. So when I look at their actions, the actions of police officers, um, I don't blame them for the initial confrontation and interaction because they're doing it during the course of their duty. Right. And, and then in those cases, you've got to figure out at what point do they stop being law enforcement and at what point do they become lawbreakers? And, and for the jury in Derek Chauvin's case, uh, they found that there was that, the time that that happened. It was probably as soon as the knee went on his neck. That's when he went from being law enforcement to becoming a criminal and a murderer. And it, and it happened. In the Ahmad Arbery case, to me, 
it doesn't start. It starts before that. It starts with the chase. If, in fact, they're ever convicted of anything in this case, it, it, it begins with them just getting involved. Like, why are you getting involved? And when I evaluate the, the factual uh, circumstances of the case, I take that into account as to why are they following him. Whereas I don't question why Derek Chauvin and the other officers are approaching George Floyd. They're doing their jobs. But in approaching and chasing Ahmaud Arbery, you're not doing your job. So all of that comes under scrutiny and, and to me is a much stronger case for prosecutors when looking at those circumstances. So, and I understand why folks who are out protesting and concerned about the issues look at these cases similar because of the similarities of the victims, right? African-American men who have no weapon, who are dying, right? I understand all of that. But to me, as a lawyer, me as a former prosecutor, I look at the cases much differently because every case is based upon the facts and the law. And, and from the beginning, the facts are much different because in one case, you have police officers who are defendants. In the other case, you have private citizens who are defendants. Okay, folks, that's it for me for now. But I want to let you know a couple things. Number one, Check the show notes. Uh, we've got a lot of links so you can see uh, all the background information we have on these two cases because the death of George Floyd, the trials will continue. We've got uh, federal trials coming up. We've got the state case. We've got sentencing as well. And the Ahmaud Arbery case now has an October 18th trial date and some big decisions have to come down. So uh, check the show notes. Also, you can watch me every night from 8 to 11 on Court TV. Um, if you don't have Court TV, but you have a digital antenna, I would ask you to please rescan that digital antenna because then you may very well find Court TV and be able to watch the world of crime and justice night in and night out, day after day, with our gavel-to-gavel coverage. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening and downloading. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.